Well, welcome, to, welcome to Route 66, 66 books, unlimited miles. Do you, do you get the joke now? Is that, when we announced this a couple of weeks ago, people were like, what? <laughs> um, I'm glad, glad you're here. We have 150 chairs set up, and we have filled almost every chair. We've got a couple extra chairs coming out in case we need them, so this is a really cool thing. Yeah, thanks for coming out tonight. Okay, does everybody have a, a copy of the syllabus? Um, I made 125 copies. I, we had 70 signups. I thought, I'll do 125. We're looking like close to 160 people, maybe more, with the, all the extra chairs they're setting up. So if you didn't get one, share with your neighbor. Let me go through this just briefly, real, just briefly, real quick. Tonight, um, I apologize that you didn't get the readings ahead of time. <clears throat> but tonight is beginnings. We're going to look at Genesis through Deuteronomy, and we're going to do that in 45 minutes. So we're going to fly through. Next week is Game of Thrones. We're going to start with the book of Joshua, and those are the texts that I'm going to reference. And so the idea here is I'm giving you all these texts so that you can read them ahead of time if you have a chance. If you read it ahead of time and you don't understand a thing, that's great. You'll still uh, get into the Bible study a lot more uh, quickly if you've read them. Also, let me say a word about this. I titled it Game of Thrones for the second section on purpose. One, um, have you seen, anybody, how many of you have seen the Game of Thrones? Have some of you seen the Game of Thrones? Yeah, it's, it's wild and violent and crazy and weird and strange and all kinds of um, sometimes um, uh, inappropriate things happen between people. Uh, can I say it that way? Uh, am I covered? And a friend of mine on Facebook who's a good buddy, he's a conservative pastor in a very evangelical church, but we're good friends, we've known each other for 35 years, and we talk back and forth and agree on most things, but argue on some things. He was really concerned about whether or not Christians should watch the, the series Game of Thrones. I wrote back and said, are you kidding? Have you read Joshua and Judges? And, <laughs> and First and Second Kings, and First and Second Samuel, and First and Second Chronicles. We'll look at just a brief glimpse next week of all the wild and crazy stuff going on as people battle for uh, power and control and a host of other things. Um, there's, if this section of the Bible had a movie made about it, it would be rated M.A., mature audiences only. Trust me on that. And then wise words for tough times. We'll look at Job. Uh, briefly look at the book of Psalms. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Um, that's just supposed to say skim, not skim for. Um, that's a typo. Sorry about that. But skim through the Song of Solomon. Um, how many of you know what the Song of Solomon is about? How many of you think it's about sex? Yeah, that's a, that's a thing in there. Yeah, trust me. Um, then uh, 8th century prophets, uh, op-ed writers for the 8th century. Um, Isaiah and Jeremiah, Hosea, Amos, and Micah really were the op-ed writers of their time. They were the people who, based on their theological understanding of God and Israel and their political understanding of what things were happening in, in, within the capital of Jerusalem, etc., would comment on that. They weren't prophesying things a thousand years later. They were commenting on what might happen tomorrow if God's people didn't live a certain way. I'll say a lot more about that. We get to October 3rd. The next week is good news for all and all means all. We're going to look at Matthew 1 to 2 and Luke 2. Those are the Christmas stories. Two very different, separate, completely separate Christmas stories that every church in the world every year melds together as though it's one uh, story. I learned today in our staff meeting that we do that here too. And that's okay because every church I've served has done that. But it's important to look at them as separate stories because Matthew and Luke are making very different points. Matthew 5 to 7, anybody know what that is off the top of your head? 
Sermon on the Mount, good. We got some Bible people here, good, all right. Uh, Luke 15, parables of grace. And then Matthew and Mark, Luke and John, those are all the stories of the resurrection. Which, by the way, four very different stories. Four very different versions of what happened. Um, That'll be fun to look at. And then the last week is Peter, Paul, and the Revelation, which is not a new rock group. Um, We'll look at Romans 5 and 8, 1 Corinthians 13, which is the love chapter, but I'm going to take a different angle of approach to that, way different angle. And then we'll get down to Revelation and and look at all that. So that's a lot of stuff uh, to begin, but I wanted to be sure you knew that there were some books available and there there are some uh, wonderful resources uh, out there. All right, it is uh, 20 minutes to eight, I promised uh, on Sunday, and I promised this to individuals I talked to that we would be done by 8.30. At the 8.30 hour, I'm gonna stop. We might be in the middle of a good conversation with some Q&A and all, but I'm gonna stop at 8.30. I will hang around as long as anyone else wants to hang around for any questions that come up, any things you wanna talk about, a question you might have for, for me that's come up tonight. If it's a really hard question, we might need to go get a glass of wine or something like that um, to help a, 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 the conversation go more smoothly. Um, but I'm, I'm gonna stop at 8.30. Um, at, um, at about 8.15, maybe 8.20 at the latest, we do have uh, two handheld mics here at the front. And uh, Stuart will turn those on for us later when we get to that point. I need a volunteer or two. Uh, Ned, you're one, thank you. And one more, thank you, Michael, you're the other one. Um, uh, we're gonna do this Phil Donahue style. So if you guys will walk the mics around and any questions that come up, that way everybody can hear the question and I don't have to, to repeat it. All right, that's a lot. Um, do you all have Bibles? Uh, by the way, we have those free Bibles that we gave out we, we, and we ran out, so we'll, we'll get more if you don't have one. But I didn't say this on Sunday and I meant to. Um, I'm trying to see if I can find it real quick here on my phone. There's an app called Bible Gateway. You probably can't see it from where you are. Um, It's got like the verse of the day. It's got the entire Bible on it. It's got about 57 different versions. King James, Common English Bible, the message. It's got uh, the new King James. It's got the living Bible. 50 or more different versions. It's free. You get a pop-up ad once in a while. I use this all the time for my daily readings. If I'm on a plane, if I'm traveling somewhere and I'm on a break, it's really an excellent app. It's called Bible Gateway. Bible Gateway. I don't get any money from this, so, you know, just, uh, it's, it's totally just, I'm just giving that to you because I think it's a great app. You know, a couple of people have said to me, it just feels wrong to read the Bible um, <clears throat> hey, there it is. Thank you, Stuart. Um, it just feels wrong to read the Bible on my phone. <laughs> and actually, I kind of get that. It does feel wrong. After all, this just looks so much more spiritual, doesn't it? <laughs> and you could be standing there reading the Bible on your phone and, and people not be impressed with how spiritual you are, spiritual you are which might be an issue. Um, uh, before, you know, before the printing press, uh, there were very, very few copies of the Bible. Very few people read the Bible. Um, so when the printing press came along, that was a radical, strange, weird idea. Oh, you mean every, everyday people can have the Bible in their hands? Oh my gosh. So this is just a change in, in tools, all, all, all that is. All right. So if you want to download that and then look up Genesis chapter 1 uh, through 2-4a, that would be terrific. The Bible begins with a poem. Genesis 1 through 2, 4a, and when I say 4a or 4b, that means the first half of the verse. Genesis 1 through 
2-4-A is a poem, probably written around four or 500 years before the time of Christ. It would have been one of the later books, uh, chapters written that you find in the Old Testament. It would not have been one of the earlier ones. It's most likely written by a group of rabbis, maybe one, but probably more, more likely a group of rabbinical scholars, that'd be Bible scholars, scholars of the law. Why? Because the people of Israel were in captivity. And the question that was rolling through their minds constantly was, God is not happy with us. We are bad people. We have failed. We have made so many mistakes. And so arising out of that question, out of that concern, that, do you hear the pastoral concern there? I mean, I've heard that in hospital rooms. I've heard that in living rooms. I've heard that comment made in, in my office. My life has fallen apart. My, my life has gone to hell. Why is God angry with me? The people were asking that question. Does God, I think there's some chairs over there to the right, y'all. There's two right here, Terry and Barb. We saved the front seats for you. Um, and we won't make fun of you at all as you come walking up. We won't say a word. It was written by these rabbis who looked out at the people of Israel who were in captivity in Babylon, who were wondering if they would ever, ever return to their homeland as a way of saying, you need to understand the one who created everything and, and all that we see, including you, is the one God of the universe, the one God of all. And remember how it goes, God created heavens and the earth, and there was light, and there was vegetation, and there was the seas, and there was all, all of that. And after each day, day one, day two, three, four, and five, and it was good. And then we get to the end of that chapter, and male and female, by the way, it seems kind of silly to have to remind everybody about this, but I'll say it so that it's on tape, because people might listen on the podcast. God created male and female in God's image. Do we have any more questions about equality? <laughs> Genesis chapter one. Male and female created in the image of God, which also says something, by the way, about God, about God. God is not defined by sexuality, by, by sex. Male and female created in the image of God. It was the end of the sixth day, and it was very good. So hear, hear, that, hear the way that poet, and, and this, it's, it's a piece of poetry. It works through each of the days in this poetic way, walking us through all of the creative acts, and it gets to the very end. And what, what, what God wants inspired through these, uh, what God inspired these rabbis to communicate was, you are very good. Have you made some mistakes and failed and, and stumbled and fallen? Have you gone down some paths that you should have known as you're walking down it would get you in trouble? Sure, of course, who hasn't? But at the end of the day, you are very good. To turn, now listen closely, to turn this text into science is to ruin the text. Has anybody read Wendell Berry? Wendell Berry's a marvelous writer, a wonderful poet, a beautiful thinker. He engages with the land to try to take a Wendell Berry poem and then apply it to, to apply scientific methodology to help explain it would be to completely lose the concept of the poem. What these ancient rabbis, five, six hundred maybe at the earliest BC, wanted the people to know is that they are very good and God is the one who created all that is. It's not about science, it's, about, it's a theological statement.
That's Genesis 1 through 2.4a. 2.4b, and by the way, all the verses that you see in the Bible, all that's added secondarily. The ancient Hebrews and then, and then the early Christians did not have verses. A lot of times they didn't have punctuation. You had to tell from the, from the context and the style and, and all that where, verse, where, where um, sentences ended and began. So there, it's really hard to do biblical translation. Uh, well, let me say this again. It was really hard for me to do biblical translation when I took, I took two years of Greek and a year of Hebrew. And, and luckily I had smart friends who helped me get through it. Um, but that's one of the issues with translation. There are no verses, there are no chapter divisions. All of that is secondary. And so a lot of times you might find if you've got a New Revised Standard Version over here and you've got a, say, an American Standard Version which came out in uh, like 1900, 1901, the, the, the chapter divisions might differ and the verses even differ a little bit. That's a normal thing to encounter. A new creation story begins, 2-4-A. And it's totally different from Genesis 1. Completely different. There's no, or, there's no daily order. In the day, it says. Now, the word day in Hebrew can mean in the era, in the time, in the moment. It can have a variety of understandings and interpretations. But the poetry of Genesis 1 is missing because now it's not poetry. The technical term for Genesis 2 and then on through 3 and 4 is etiological myth. Let's see if I can spell that. A-E-T-I-O logical. <laughs> A-E-T-I-O logical. Etiological myth. Etiological myth, that doesn't mean it's not true, but etiological myths emerge in every culture in the world. And etiological myths are, are written oftentimes to explain why things are. Think about Genesis 2 and what we know from the story. What, is it, what are some of the things it explains about human life or, or, or animal life even? There's an example there too. Can you think of anything? Anybody think of something? Why do snakes crawl on their bellies? So he's whispering. Say, say again? Yeah, because, because the snake deceived Eve. And so forever, that's why snakes crawl on their bellies. It used to be an upright person who stood on something or other, who stood on legs and so forth. Now it has to crawl on its belly as a punishment for that. What else is in there? Now you've got your minds thinking. Think about it. What else is in there? Why is there pain for the woman in childbirth? Because of her sin of taking the, the fruit from the tree. Well, why, why does a man have pain in his back from doing the work of tilling the garden? Because, because he committed a sin of eating the apple from the tree that God said don't eat from, uh, not apple, it's not apple, who? That's not an apple, it's a piece of fruit. People always call it the apple. The Bible just says it's fruit. We don't know if it was an apple or a pear or a pomegranate. I don't like pomegranate, so it's probably a pomegranate. <clears throat> do, you see, do you see what I'm talking about? Those three chapters have all kinds of things like that that explain why things are the way they are, but that's actually not really the point. That's the uh, the, the style or the form of the text. And like I said, you can read stories like this in Native American culture that explain the beginning of, of time. Uh, there's one that says that the earth uh, exists on the back of a turtle. Have you heard that one? And the question is, well, well, what does that turtle sit on? Well, another turtle. And well, what does that turtle sit on? Well, another turtle. You know, that, there, it's, a, it's a cute little story about, you know, stop asking questions. Um, but every culture has its creation myth. And sometimes those myths are used to explain the way things are. The biblical story in chapter 2 actually gets into a lot about human nature. So the etiological myth is just a structural form 
description of Genesis chapter 2 and 3 and 4. The deeper issue at work here is human nature. Think about the story. So Adam's formed and, and created, then Eve comes along. Because, by the way, it says, because Adam needed a helper. So that's true at my house. <laughs> I suppose it might be true at yours, too. And we'll get into that at a, at a, at a later date. And, and then, then some things happen, and, and God says, now, you see, all this, everything here, this is all yours. You can do whatever you want with it. You're in charge. You're in command. Um, and by the way, the word in there that we translate as in charge or in command, uh, et cetera, technically means you're the caretaker for. You know, it's your job to make sure everything flourishes. And then, and then God says, but this one beautiful tree over here, you stay away from that one. Now, why is that? Don't answer. It's a trick question. We don't know. And so, so, so one of the things that's being dealt with here in Genesis chapter 2 is the, issue, is the issue of why did bad things happen? Sometimes stuff happens. Have you seen that bumper sticker? Stuff <laughs> happens. Yeah, it's right there in Genesis 2. Don't, don't mess with this or stuff will happen. No explanation, nothing. So, of course, like, like good children do, mom said we can't have this. I'm going to go check on this over here. And, and who, who's the first one to take, take the fruit? Eve. And who talks her into doing it? The serpent or the snake? Not Satan, by the way. There's no mention of Satan. Uh, people say, well, but it is Satan. No, it's not. In the story, it's a snake who happens to talk. It is not Satan. We apply that later, and it's really a poor application. Just stay in the story. So this snake, this slippery, slimy character, that's the point the writer wants us to see, says, oh, no, come on. God doesn't want you to? Well, it's because God knows how great it is. And Eve takes it, and then she offers it to Adam, and then Adam challenges the two of them, and God says, do you remember the story? Why are you doing this? What happened? And who does Adam blame? He does not. The woman that you gave me. Now, I, I say that for a couple of things. One, this text has been misused by male misogynistic theologians for 3,000 years to hold women down to keep them back and to take power from women. And they completely missed the point. That woman that you gave me. Adam is ultimately blaming God. It's your fault, God. Now, do you see the, the amazing theological stuff going on here? You know, when, when, when you do something wrong and you know it's your fault, well, maybe this isn't you, but it's me. You know, Lord, I wouldn't have, if you hadn't done that, I wouldn't have done this. Or if you'd have made sure I wouldn't have gone there, then I, wouldn't have, I would have gone somewhere else. We, we tend to blame God or others for our own mistakes. It's, it's, a, it's a beautiful, powerful text, um, one that I'm going to preach someday, not, not in the next year or so, but, but someday I want to get back into it and really dive into it in a, in a fun, theological, homiletical, um, pastoral kind of way to illustrate all the issues that are there. And then we got Cain and Abel, and we've got all that that comes up, uh, comes up later. <clears throat> Why do I tell you this? To look at the, the, a couple of things. Number one, Genesis 1 is a poem meant to encourage and uplift. Number two, Genesis 2, on the surface level, explains why things are the way they are. At a deeper level, it explains why we are the way we are and how we approach the world. And also notice this, two completely different creation stories. 
to, if you take the Bible literally, you're already stuck at chapter two. I, and I'm not being flip. You just can't, you can't merge those stories. You can't say, well, Adam and Eve, because there's just absolutely no way to merge them. They're stylistically, they're different. The grammar, the words that are being used, they're probably written hundreds of years apart. Two completely different stories. To me, that's not a contradiction. That's a beautiful thing. How many of you know a scientist? Anybody know a scientist? How many of you know a poet? Do we want both scientists and poets in our, in our world? Absolutely, we need both. And to misuse one's work to attack the other is completely false. We have two very different stories right there in Genesis 1 and 2, which gives us a really big clue about how the Bible's gonna function. The Bible wasn't written, you know, somebody didn't sit down one day and say, today I will write the Bible. I need a pen and some paper, and I'm going to write this. That's not how it was done. Were they inspired? Were they, were they wanting to do something that they thought was theologically and spiritually helpful? Absolutely. Was God the one behind that inspiration? I believe that for sure. But to say that somehow that it was dictated or that it was meant to be taken literally is just absolutely impossible. And in my mind, ruins the text. Takes away the power that's already there by trying to put it in our, in our own interpretation. Um, if you've got questions about that, I'll be happy to address them when we get towards the, uh, towards the end. All right, with your Bibles or your apps or whatever you're on, um, turn to Genesis 12. Genesis 12, 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you. I will curse and in you, hear this word, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Stuart, can you put up um, the maps for me, please? All the families of the earth shall be, shall be blessed. Abram, as he was known then, can you see my little red pointer there? Probably lived up in some of this area here. Let me get to the other side so you guys over here can see it too. Abram probably lived over here somewhere. And, and it appears as though when he left here, he left uh, this, this area here. This might have been the Ur of the Chaldees, more or less. He then comes down here into what we know as modern-day Palestine. You see where I am? Same thing over here. This, this section here is more or less where Abraham was from. He would have gone around this way because this is all desert. Would have gone around this way and come down into this area here, somewhere between the Jordan and the, the Mediterranean. Oh, let me say that. Um, it's not, can you see it there? Some of you can. That's the Mediterranean Sea. That's the Jordan River right about there. That's the Dead Sea. So somewhere in this area here, which if you've ever been to the Holy Land, you know is a fairly lush and green. How many of you have been to the Holy Land, by the way? Some of you have. Good. Um, I, I, bought, I bought this text up for a couple of reasons. One, it's a, it's a text on faith. God said go, and Abram went. Chances are, in the way the story is told, that he was extraordinarily rich very comfortable, had everything he needed in life. God comes and says, I'm going to bless all nations through you. Now go. That's kind of a weird thing because Abram and Sarah have no kids. Abram and his wife, actually she's called Sarai at the beginning. It changes to Sarah later. They have no kids. According to the story, they're in their 70s. And it's like in their 90s before they, they, 
they get this real promise from God saying, oh, I'm going to give you all kinds of kids and your descendants are going to look like the stars of, of the skies of heaven. Which is a fascinating little, little thing because they're in their 90s and they don't have kids. So again, don't get caught up in the literalism of it. Listen to the beauty of the story. God's going to take a couple in their 90s. What, what's the joke? Wait, do, you remember, do you remember this joke? The 90-year-old woman goes out on a date for the first time with a 90-year-old friend of hers from down the hall. And, and somebody, oh, geez, I'm messing up the joke. Somebody, somebody says to her, now you be careful now, you know. You don't want you to get in any kind of trouble. And she says, well, I don't know, there's always hope. <laughs> That's kind of a risque. Can I tell that joke? Is that okay to tell that joke? <clears throat> it's a joke. It's a theological joke. And then God comes to, to Sarah and says, by the way, you're pregnant. Do you remember how Sarah reacts? She laughs. No way am I pregnant. There's no way. No, you are. What, what, what the storytellers want us to get is not into an argument about, can 90-year-old people have babies? Uh, anybody close to that age who wants to have a baby right now? Probably not. I'm 58. I don't want a baby. A grandbaby, maybe. Um, but not yet, as Julie would say. Not yet. We, we need wives and marriages marriage first. <clears throat> the point is, look at how miraculous this God is. Look at what this God's able to do. What inside of you seems dead? What inside of you feels hopeless? What inside of you needs to be reborn? What, what do you need to leave behind in order to go do something new? Whether you're 9 or 99, that's what's at work in this text. Again, that's the beauty and the power of this. It's also a, sec a second thing that's happening here is the, is the way that, uh, the way, the way that um, <clears throat> peace for the world is being reframed. At the time of, of Abraham, which would have been, oh, 1,500 years before Jesus or more, how, how was how peace attained in the world? Through war. My country battles your country, my battle wins. Now we have peace for everybody, and by the way, we're in charge. As long as we're in charge, there'll be peace. You don't do what we say, uh, we lost peace. God flips the whole thing upside down. It says, through your family, Abram, through your faith, through your love of neighbor, through your willingness to look for shalom, and shalom means more than peace. Shalom means wholeness, fullness, completeness. Shalom means hungry people have food. Shalom means homeless people have a roof over their head. Shalom means everyone has enough to eat, to share, to get around. That's the ultimate, ultimate meaning of shalom. God is saying it's not through who has the biggest weapons and who gets to be in charge and force peace. I mean, the, when, when the Romans were really in charge and strong and in charge, there was the Pax Romana the peace of Rome, and if you didn't believe it, we'll cut your head off and get you out of the way while we continue to live in peace. God turns that whole thing upside down. He says it's going to be through your family and through the love and care you give to the community that peace will be brought to the world and all nations will be blessed. All right, I'm going to move on to Genesis chapter 50. <laughs> See, we're, we're, we're 30 minutes into our first Bible study and we're not even out of Genesis yet, but we're going to, we're going to rock and roll here and, and, and keep on going. Genesis 50. Now, there's a lot more that we could have gotten into in the book of Genesis, of course. Um, I, I, while you're looking up Genesis 50, and it'll be verses, find my note here, uh, 15 to 21. While you're flipping to that, let me say a word about Noah, the story of Noah, just real quickly. It starts in Genesis 7 or so. Um, 
Why did God destroy the world? Anybody know? Say it out loud. Didn't like what we were doing. That's a good, good general answer. Yes. Then was it more specific according to the story? Uh, that's Lot. What'd you say? Idols? Nope. Lack of hospitality. Not yet. That's later. Generally bad people. Yes. Violence. Because of your violence against each other, I'm going to wipe you out. Now again, by the way. Don't get caught up in the littleness of it. Don't worry about how God comes off in here because God looks like a mean-spirited bully. There's a longer conversation around that. In fact, I'm thinking about doing a full study on Genesis next year as this six-week senior minister's Bible study. We'll spend six weeks through just that one book of Genesis. But again, the Bible is so rich when we take it more seriously and we look at what's going on here. Part of this, here's another Bible trivia question for you. Uh, how do the animals get on the boat? Well, they walked, yes, thank you. <laughs> It, it was this ancient helicopter that, that helicoptered them in and dropped them down. That's as, as viable as anything. They went in two by two or? Or was it seven pairs of every animal? It says both. The story contradicts itself. It's kind of hilarious. Um, again, don't get caught up in that. It's fun to get into that conversation. We'll do that next year when we do the Genesis study. The reason that destruction has come upon the world is their violence. The story is teaching the world, specifically the Hebrew folks, but the world beyond that, that violence leads to violence, leads to violence, leads to destruction. Right there in the beginning of Genesis, we have a, a, a roadmap for what happens when we continue to live in war and, and we let war define us. All right, Genesis 50. <clears throat> it's the story of Joseph. It's the end of the story. I'll quickly tell you the story, uh, Joseph's story. Joseph um, was one of, of 13 sons. He was the favored son. Remember the story of Joseph and the, the Technicolor coat. Every, everyone knows Technicolor, even though that's from, uh, from Broadway, not the Bible, but yes. The, the, <laughs> The, the, the coat of many colors, thank you, we have Bible scholars on the front row. Yes, the coat, the, Joseph and the Technicolor coat, yes. Um, uh, he's got the coat of many colors, he's a dreamer, he dreams. He's a little bit arrogant and a little bit, hey, you know, someday you're all going to have to bow down to me. Um, but a way to look at that, by the way, is the reason, one of the reasons Joseph is so full of himself is because he's attached himself to the dream of God. He's taking seriously God's dream for shalom, for wholeness. And so maybe when he's younger, he's a little bit pushing, a little bit obnoxious about that. But ultimately what Joseph is trying to say is, I want to connect us to the dream of God. I'm dreaming with God. By the way, um, this is Walter Brueggemann's take on it. Walter Brueggemann is a brilliant Old Testament scholar. I was looking to see if David Hetz out there. David, is that David out there? Jim, do you know if we ever had Brueggemann here? We, we, we have had Brueggemann, oh, Kate's there too, good, yeah, we've had Brueggemann here, brilliant guy. That's his idea about this whole story. It's about, it's about letting the dream of God form who we are, which hopefully reminds you of a sermon you may have heard on Sunday, letting God's dream broaden and widen our dreams in a way perhaps we've never done before. 
That's what Joseph is caught up in. Well, in the story, his brothers are jealous. They decide to kill him. They say, oh, we can't kill him. So what do they do? They throw, they throw him down in a well. They fake his death. They take some blood of an animal and put it on his clothes. And they go back to their dad to say, hey, Joseph's dead. Sorry about this. And then they sell him into slavery. And he's dragged off into, into Egypt. While he's in Egypt, he, becomes, he kind of raises up as a slave. He becomes the, the head of Potiphar's house. Potiphar's wife says, hmm, young, handsome dude, I'd like to uh, uh, be intimate and close to him. Again, I told you the Bible, it's R-rated a lot of times. And, and she presents herself to him, and he says, no, I can't do that. You're another man's wife. And so she has him thrown in prison. It's power abusing the lowly, by the way. You can see that happening there. But he's in prison, and what does he do? He continues to dream. And he helps the prisoners with their dreams. And pretty soon he becomes famous. And, and they come and say, hey, the Pharaoh's having some wild dreams. What do you think about that? So he comes and helps the Pharaoh interpret his dreams. And the next thing you know, he says to the Pharaoh, what you've been dreaming of is in fact going to happen. We're going to have seven years of famine. But before that, we're going to have seven years of, 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 of growth. So be sure you store enough for when the famine hits. Sure enough, that happens. And the Pharaoh is like, wow, we need, we need to put you in leadership. And he basically becomes vice Pharaoh of Egypt. I mean, essentially. Just like Technicolor Dreamcoat's not in there, neither is Vice Pharaoh. But that's essentially, that's essentially what he becomes. The famine hits, and what happens to his family? His family, his family is up here in, in Israel. See his family right up here? And they come down over here into Egypt. Probably right near Memphis, down there in the corner. And they come before their brother, and it's, all, it's a whole long story. I won't get into all of it. But at the end, after their father has died, the brothers have finally discovered who Joseph is. They don't recognize him at first because he's wearing Egyptian makeup, and he's changed, and his speech is different and all that. And it's been many years, so they don't recognize him. Finally, they recognize him, and what are, the, what are his brothers? Scared to death. If you're the vice pharaoh, we're in deep trouble. He, he can kill them. And frankly, people in political power like that sometimes make those kind of decisions around the world. He can do it. But he says to them, my brothers, here's one of my favorite texts, have no fear. What you intended for evil, evil, God was able to take and twist and bend and change for good. Do you hear the beauty in that text? That's grace 101. That's forgiveness 101. That's, that's one of the most powerful stories in the entire Bible. I'll put that up there with Jesus. It's absolutely amazing. He falls on his knees and he embraces his brothers. What you intended for evil, God took and twisted, bent, molded, reshaped into something for good. Not, not all things happen for good reasons, no. But God moves into the middle of the evil and transforms it there. It's just a powerful, beautiful story. All right. Then we get to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 1, uh, verse 8 says, Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. You get the context? The Hebrews are in trouble. By the time we get to chapter 5, we've discovered that the Hebrews, and that's where I want you to flip to, uh, 5, 1 through 9. The, the Hebrews are in serious, serious trouble. They're slaves. They're being mistreated. They're being misused. But if you're Egypt and you've got all this free labor, you're kind of reluctant to let that free, free labor go away, aren't you? I mean, this is economic fuel. This is political and military power. 
Moses is called by God, reluctantly at first, but finally he says, yes, okay, I'll go. And he delivers what we could call the first political sermon ever given. If you think politics shouldn't come to worship, go ahead and cut Exodus out of your Bible. He walks up in front of the most powerful political leader in the world, the Pharaoh of Egypt. And what does he say? Let my people go. Four words. Pretty good sermon in four words. I'm going to work on that. I'll let you know how I do. <laughs> let my people go. Why is it a political sermon? Where is he? He's in Pharaoh's hall. Who's he talking to? Pharaoh. What happens if he lets the people go? Their economy goes in the toilet. Their military power is weakened. His political power is taken almost completely away from him. It's, a, it's, a, it's an absolute challenge from a person from a faith perspective speaking to somebody in power and saying, this is wrong. You need to stop. He doesn't make a speech about, oh, I don't care what, you know, if it's, how it's going to hurt your politics. I don't care about your military or, you know, who's going to be running for you in the 2020 uh, campaign. I'm not worried about that. Doesn't say that stuff. Let my people go. <clears throat> the Bible continually, continually tackles politics. Now, the part we got to be careful about when I say something like that is the tendency for all of us, Republicans and Democrats and Greens and Socialists and everybody else in between, Independents, everybody else. If God always agrees with your political viewpoint, you want to check on your view of God. Because God challenges all of us. And sometimes we have a tendency to say, well, I thought God was concerned about this, but since my current candidate doesn't, well, then I just not, I'm going to ignore that. And we do that on both sides of the political aisle. But I, I, want, I, want, to, I want you to see that this issue of, of politics is a, is a part of the Bible. I'll, I'll get into this a little bit more when I talk about the resurrection at the, at the um, uh, fifth week. Um, but let me remind you, who killed Jesus? Not Herod, not the people, not the priests. Wasn't the people. Who killed Herod? Who killed Jesus? Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate. The Roman government, he was a political prisoner executed by the Roman government. I grew up being taught, well, it was the people who did it. It was because the people called for, well, yeah, there were people in the streets saying crucify him. But the person who could make the decision was the governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate, who, by the way, if you've been to his place in, in um, uh, the Holy Land, he had a pretty nice little palace on the, sea of, uh, on the Mediterranean Sea, uh, right next door to Herod's summer home on the Mediterranean Sea. He had a pretty cushy, comfortable life. Going up to Jerusalem, which if you've been down in that, in that part of the world, you have to go up to Jerusalem to get up there where it's hot and dusty and sweaty and, and there's, the city's crowded and dirty and smelly and, and, it's, and it's all this political unrest going on and all that sort of thing. You can just kind of read Pilate's mind. I can't wait till I can get back to the Mediterranean Sea. But I want you to remember, he was a political prisoner executed by a politician. There's a whole lot of other things going on there. The religious leaders were in cahoots with him. The people gave up on, on Jesus and they said, fine, kill him. We want him dead too. But it was a political choice and a political decision. The Bible is full of stuff like this. The book of Revelation is a political document written in code. We'll get to that later. All right. So I wanted, I wanted to point that out, that um, uh, that sort of stuff is going on. 
Oh, we're gonna move quickly to Leviticus 18.22. In fact, what I think I'll say is there is a great section, uh, the Leviticus texts that are on your text there, Leviticus 18.22 and 20 and 13. Yeah, it's on your notes. Um, yeah, see Hamilton chapter 29. Okay, these are the texts that some folks who are uh, uh, somewhat homophobic use to attack people in same-sex relationships. Adam's got a great chapter, chapter 29. You can skip ahead and read it. It's really, really good stuff that, that deals with uh, some of the issues that are around same-sex relationships in the Bible. And because it's already 8.15, I'm going to skip on ahead. <clears throat> Not because I'm afraid. I'd be happy to talk about it. But um, in some ways, this church has already dealt with that stuff anyway. Okay, last section, then we'll get to Q&A. <laughs> Julie, I'm going to do this. You're going you're to tell me afterwards, I can't believe you did that, but I'm, I'm going to do it. When I was a jet cadet for Jesus, yes, yes. <laughs> Lieutenant Commander Jack, Glenn Miles reporting, I was in the fifth grade, and we had this group on Sunday nights called the Jet Cadets for Jesus Club. And the way you moved, it was true, we had little uniforms, you know, little blue shirts and little hats like, like we were in the Air Force. And the way you moved up as a jet cadet was How? you memorized the Bible. And the more verses you memorized, the higher you raised, you, you went in rank. I want you to know that at Park Avenue Christian Church in Montebello, California, I was the fastest ever to lieutenant commander. I just want you to know that. <laughs> Shortly after that, uh, um, Lester Smathers, and that was his name, Lester Smathers started coming to the Jet Cadets. In, time, in less time than I, he became lieutenant commander. So I wrote an anonymous note to my father, the pastor. <laughs> And I said, dear dad, I think, and Lester's parents didn't come to church. They dropped him off on Sunday night. They never came to church. So I wrote and said, dear dad, I think, I think people who don't come to church on Sunday mornings should not be allowed to come on, on Sunday nights. Love, your son. Um, I got, serious point, I got my first lesson in inclusivity from my dad. My dad said, in no uncertain terms, our church is open to anyone and everyone. That was 1969. That was kind of a radical thing to say back then, but it was the first time I got that lesson and being open to anyone and everyone. Another thing I used to do in Jet Cadets um, was there was a time when, when, when they would say, um, okay, hold up your Bibles. Now, anyone who'd like to, flip to your favorite verse in the Bible and read, read it out loud, would you please? And so it, it came around to my turn. Okay, Glenn, what's your favorite verse? And I open up and I flip to it. Deuteronomy 23.1. Anybody know that one off the top of your head? Some of you have found it. He whose testicles are crushed or penis cut off shall not enter the sanctuary of the Lord. It's in the Bible. And the funny part is, yay to the 10th generation. I'm not sure how that happens if the first... Dr. Davis, explain that to me. I, I don't know. Now, why am I telling you that story? One, I think it's kind of funny. Oh, by the way, I got in trouble too. I, every, every time I do that in Jet Cadets, I'd have to sit out in the hallway. And my dad, Jet Cadets met from 5 to 6, or from 6 to 7. And then Sunday night church was at 7. And, and it wasn't a repeat of the Sunday morning sermon. It was a whole new sermon. I mean, we were serious Christians back in the day. And my dad would see me sitting in the hallway outside the Jet Cadets room, and he'd go, Deuteronomy 23.1. <laughs> Yes, Dad. Uh, um. <laughs> Isaiah. Now, it's clear. The text is clear, right? It's really talking about eunuchs, okay? Eunuchs are those people in those other countries. Those, those, those strange other countries have that. And so we're not going to let, we don't want those people to be a part of us. 
Isaiah 58, or 56, 1 through 8. The eunuch is welcome. I want you to hear what's happening here. I'm making a serious point. The Bible corrects itself. By the time Isaiah comes around, Isaiah's starting to get it in his head. Remember, he, these are the op-ed writers of the 8th century. Isaiah's starting to get it around his head. Wait a minute. If Abraham was to be a blessing to everyone, if forgiveness is extended to all, if we truly believe this is the God of the universe and the world and this God has created everything, how can we say no to the eunuch? By the way, there's another funny line in there too. The eunuch shall not say, I am a dry stick. Um, you can figure that out later too. But it's kind of funny, it's kind of silly, and it makes me sweat when I talk like this. But part of what I want you to see is the reality of the Bible. How it's written to real people in real situations in real times. Isaiah writes in, in the 56th chapter, no, even the eunuch is welcome to be a part of who we are. There are no barriers. There are no walls. Now, now flip ahead in your Bibles to Acts 8, 26 to 40. And I'll tell you the story while you're turning there. That's in the New Testament. After the book of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Book of Acts tells the story of the church and its formation after the resurrection. <clears throat> I just went blank. It's Philip, right? It's Philip, yes. Philip is, uh, again, like the Spirit did with Abram, way back there in Genesis 12, the Spirit says, uh, go out to the desert and preach out there. And so Philip says, okay, and he goes. And he runs into a eunuch. And the eunuch's been reading from the prophet Isaiah. And he says to Philip, who's this talking about? And Philip says, this is the Glenn Miles translation, Philip says, well, we believe it's an image of what Jesus Christ would be like. He too suffered. He too was wounded. He too was dragged away to death. And yet he's the one who's come to save the world. And then the eunuch says, well, they come upon a little pond. And he says, well, here's water. What's to prevent me from being baptized? And Philip says, well, nothing. Let's go get it done. And he's baptized. Look at the Ark of the Bible. From that harsh word in Deuteronomy 23.1, to Isaiah 56, who I believe was Jesus' favorite prophet, by the way. I'll say more about that when we get to Jesus in a few weeks, but I believe Isaiah was Jesus' favorite prophet. We get to Isaiah 56, who, who reinvents who's welcome in the, in the family of God, to this new church that's now being formed. And again, where was the eunuch? He'd been in Jerusalem. He'd heard the reading in the temple. Now, if you're a Gentile at the temple, do you get to go inside the temple for the readings of Scripture? You don't. Where do you go? You stand in the court of the Gentiles. And the Gentiles were welcome to stand there and they could hear the readings, they could hear the songs, the hymns, the psalms being sung, all of that. And if there were, there were certain things they could do to become, to become um, a part of the Jewish faith. But by the way, the court of the Gentiles, that's the place where the sellers, when Jesus goes wacko crazy and kicks all the, the sellers out, it's the court of the Gentiles. Why is he so angry? Because it's the place where the folks from the outside can actually hear what's going on inside. And he's furious. Get this stuff out of the way. You're blocking the door. People can't get into here. They can't stand outside and hear. That's where, the, that's where the eunuch's been. He wants to know, can I be a part of this faith? Can I follow that one? And of course, the final answer from Philip, 
from Isaiah, from Jesus, from the one who created all that is, is yes. Okay, I need my um, uh, microphone runners. If you would, please, Stuart will use these. If you've got a question, raise your hand. It would be helpful if you would stand. And we've got about, uh, we'll make it 10 more minutes for any Q&A that's out there. Anything you got. If you've got a burning question, um, we'd love to hear it from you. Anything you, want to, anything you want to ask, anything and everything. If you're afraid about asking it, go ahead. Please. No, we want you to know a mic so everybody can hear. Hold it right up to your mouth. Right up here. There you go. Right up here. Oh, okay. There it is. Is that all right? That's better. <coughs> Go. All right. I've often heard that Aaron spoke for Moses more than Moses spoke for himself. Is that true? It seems to be from the way the story goes, yeah. Um, the story seems to imply that Moses had a speech impediment, perhaps. I, you know, I've got problems with speaking, and God's like, I don't care, I'm sending you. So maybe that's why the sermon was so short, <laughs> you know. <laughs> it was four words, and it took him a while. I, I don't know. Um, but yeah, Aaron, Aaron was his spokesperson. And, and by the way, the whole Exodus story is a, is a brilliant, um, a, again, explanation of the way a community is formed and all the issues that come and happen and the way people react and, 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 and such to, to each other and to, to life together. And, you know, you remember the story, they get through the Red Sea, they get to the other side, and now it's been a few days and all they've got is water and manna and they're kind of like, you know, back in Egypt we had a roof over our head and we had lamb and we had, you know, mint jelly and all kinds of good stuff. And now we're out here in the middle of the desert and this is terrible. You know, it, it's like, you can just see God kind of going, I saved you from slavery, and that's what you want to go back to. But that's a totally normal thing. It's, have you ever seen, uh, I don't have the, um, think of a loop where the line goes like this, and then it loops back and comes back around, and then it crosses over itself. You know what I'm talking about? That's, that's the pattern of the exodus. That's the pattern of communities. When there's a change, people are thrown into chaos. When something happens that they're not expecting, or even if it's good, how many, of you have, how many parents do we have out there? Was that first year with your first child smooth, easy, no problems, everything's fine? No, you start to, oh boy, I remember, I remember when we weren't pregnant. Do you remember when we weren't pregnant? And Julie says, yeah, you weren't pregnant. <laughs> but you know, you tend to want to go back to all that stuff. And so the, the book of Exodus is just this amazing study of human community and psychology and all, all that. Thank you, good question. Other questions? Okay, what's our hashtag? Okay, if you have any questions or thoughts or comments that you want to share with me or with the Twitter verse, am I saying that right? Um, if you want to share that with the world, just go on to Twitter. If you don't have a Twitter account, get one and use the hashtag, you know, like the pound sign, Glenn, one N. <coughs> Thank you, one, one N. Where's Glenn's look? I saw him. Glenn's two N's. His name is wrong. Mine's one. Um, <laughs> Actually, we both know how to spell each other's names because it's a big deal for Glenn's. Um, we pay attention to that. Uh, um, put in Glenn, G-L-E-N, 66, number, number six, number six. Um, and uh, they'll, they'll, you can find that on, on Twitter. It'll be fun to do it. If you've got a question for me, you can go to at Glenn Miles. Okay, other questions? Comments? I'll give you a preview of next week if I don't have any questions. Here we go, right here. Please. Hey, hang on. You speak. You speak very quickly. Yes. <laughs> yes. 
I'll slow down. I've never heard that before. No. Michael, right over here. My friend Susan Shows, who was, she was one of my references for this job. She was the president of the congregation in Atlanta that I served. Uh, she's a vice president with a research firm in Atlanta. She said to the, um, the folks in Kansas City when I went there who were saying, boy, he talks fast. She, was, uh, she spoke at my installation service, and, and she, she has this great southern accent because she's from Atlanta. And she said, y'all, I want to tell you, you should have heard how fast Glenn talked before we got a hold of him. <laughs> I'm trying. Please. So my question's about preparing for next week. I yes. mean, I, I see you have the readings. Uh, yes. It, at this point, it feels kind of overwhelming. I, like, I want to go back through what you've done tonight, and yet I have a life, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's not all about Bible study? Come on. Um, yeah, here's, here's a couple things. Each of the readings, you know what I'll do? Yeah, well, each of the readings shouldn't take you more than 15 or 20 minutes. So if you were to block out 15 minutes a day, you could read each one of those and be ready next week. If you block out another 15 minutes, you can review what we did tonight. Each, once, 15 minutes a day. Um, if you don't read it next week, don't worry, because I'm going to go through it very quickly. <laughs> um, let me give a preview about Joshua 2 through 6. And maybe you're already figuring out where I'm kind of going with some of this stuff. Um, the book of Joshua is one of the most violent, ugly books in the Bible. There's some beautiful stuff in there. But it's pretty violent and pretty ugly. The, the um, chosen ones have been wandering in the desert for how long? 40 years. 40 years. By the way, the number 40 comes up a lot in the Bible. How many days was Jesus in, in, in the wilderness? 40 days. That's a big number in the Bible. I'll say more about that next week. Um, they come in, they cross the River Jordan, and they, they send in a couple of spies to go check out Jericho. Do you remember the story? Where, where, whose house do they go to? Rahab's house. Rahab's house is a... She's a prostitute. It's a house of prostitution, we'd say, in good company. Um, if you've been wandering the desert for 40 years and you're a couple of soldiers, <laughs> I, I, I'm really not even trying to be funny. It's just, it's just kind of amazing how the Bible just says stuff like this. And, and, and yet she becomes the one who saves them. I'm not going to get into this much next week. That's what I'm telling you tonight. She becomes the one who saves those two, allows the, them, the, the people to win their war with Jericho, and Rahab is named in the genealogy of Jesus. There's a hooker in Jesus' past. It's a powerful thing. Somebody had a, a question over here somewhere. Where was it? Ned, where's that mic? Julie's got the mic. Any more questions? So let me, let me, oh, wait, there's one way in the back, please. Oh, here, here, there, and then Julie, back over there to the right, green shirt, please. Just for October 1st, 8th century BCE op-ed writers. What does BCE op-ed writers B mean? BCE means before the common era. That's what scholars are using these days. They use BCE and CE, the common era, versus AD and BC. And so op-ed writers, that was what I was saying earlier, is that the prophets really weren't prophesying the way up in the advanced future. They're opinion writers about what's going on right now. Like you would read in the New York Times, David Brooks. Good colonist, good thinker, conservative mostly, but a uh, fascinating guy to read. That's, that's, how, they, that's how they were. Uh, there was somebody back here. 
Uh, you mentioned earlier uh, about reading the Bible literally, and you've also uh, used the word inspiration or inspired. So I've, I've heard mostly the Bible's inspired because of dictation and, and, uh, and because we read it literally. So you must think of inspiration in a different way, and I wonder if you could just elaborate on that a little bit. That's a really good question. Thank you for asking that, and that'll be our final one, and then we'll, then we'll go. Um, <clears throat> when my friend Adam Hamilton, who's at the Church of the Resurrection in, in Kansas City, came out here in May and preached for my installation service, I believe his sermon was inspired by God. I thought, I don't know about anybody else, I needed to hear that word from Adam. A lot of people in the church afterwards said, boy, did we need to hear that sermon. How many of you heard Adam preach when he was here? A lot of you did. You know, I, you don't have to agree with me or not, but does that, that, that's kind of what I'm getting at is, is, is inspiration from God doesn't mean dictated to. It means the Spirit was at work. And sometimes it means, uh, trying, trying to think of, well, for example, after Charlottesville, um, you know, I drove home, uh, I'd been at the church all day on, a, on that Saturday afternoon, drove home, turned on the news, and here's all this stuff. Um, I woke up three times in the middle of the night and rewrote, I, I rewrote my sermon, then I rewrote the end, then I rewrote the sermon, then at 5 a.m. I rewrote the sermon, then I got down to my office at 7 and, and went through it one more time, changed a couple things here and there. Um, I believe that was the Spirit of God working on me. Was everything I said, does that, should we all agree that 100%, oh, Glenn named it, that's it, we set, that settles it? No. But to me, that's what inspiration is, and that's, that's what the Bible is. The Bible is a collection of, of men and maybe women. It's hard to say. I mean, there's some stories that are inspired about women. Maybe there was a, some people believe the book of Hebrews, for example, was written by a woman. Um, it's a collection of inspired stories, poems, histories, rules, laws, as, as people best understood in their particular context and their particular place. Um, and how they understood God and how they understood God's work at work in the world. Does that, does that help? Great, thank you. All right, sir. Oh yeah, yeah, thank you. Um, we, are, we did record uh, this, uh, and so if you have to miss next week and you want to catch up on next week, we're going to put it online every week. It'll be available as a podcast. It'll be available somewhere on the website. I don't know all that stuff, um, but, but we'll, we'll put that out on uh, Facebook. Go to my Facebook page, go to my Twitter page. I put all that stuff out there all the time. So if you can't make it next week, or if you know somebody who wasn't here tonight, um, if it was too fast and I went too fast, you can, you can catch up and, and listen, listen later. Okay, let's say a prayer and then we'll be gone. Thank you all for coming tonight. I really appreciate you being here. Let's pray. God, we're grateful for the way you continue to inspire and speak to us today. We're grateful for the way that you have called this community together to be faithful in all ways to the love that you've given to us so that we indeed might love others. In Christ's name, amen.